I didn't wish you earlier, but happy Valentine's Day. Um, Some people love this holiday because it means sweets and chocolates and cards and all of that kind of stuff. And other people don't like it so much. Maybe for the same reasons, I don't know. Um, but anyway, happy Valentine's Day. I want you to know that here at Calvary Baptist Church, we love you. Uh, and we are thankful for you and your involvement in our ministry. Now, let me just say, Ben, we kind of hung you out there on a limb. Okay? Um, my wife was very ambitious, and she went through and planned out songs for the next uh, several weeks. And I don't tell her weeks in advance what my particular topic is going to be, so love is not the topic this morning, Ben, but because it's Valentine's Day, love is the theme for the songs, okay? Um, But anyway, uh, we can certainly fit God's love into our topic of of discussion this morning, Um, and I'll just tell you the title right off the bat. The fact is that we're going to look at the fact that God is supreme this morning. God is supreme. We're going to take a look at this attribute of God. It's an often overlooked attribute, and it's not really considered, like if you look at the books that talk about the attributes of God, not a lot of them list God's supremacy as one of those attributes, but it's an attribute that is very important, very significant. It's an attribute that's actually tied very closely to the very first attribute that we looked at when we kicked off our study on the attributes of God. Dare I ask if anybody remembers what that attribute was? Um, I won't put anybody on the spot for that. Uh, I'll just tell you that that attribute was the sovereignty of God. And, and you, you might remember that we, I chose that because of the craziness in which our world seems to have settled down for this period of time in history. Things are just nuts um, I usually reserve that word for my dog, Jaunty. Um, I, I, me, jo- Josiah and I call him, we say, Jaunty, you're nuts. Um, but really, our world is in a crazy situation, and it's great to be reminded that God is still sovereign, God is still in control, and that nothing, even COVID, does not take our God by surprise. We know that, and we take great comfort, we take great hope in that fact that God is not caught off guard. God never is up in heaven and throwing his hands up in the air and saying, oh no, what do I do now? Um, Even when we mess up things so bad in life that we don't see the way out, God is never saying, oh, I don't know what to do now because Tim did such a stupid thing. He doesn't work that way. He knows the stupid things I'm going to do ahead of time. And he still has a way of, uh, of allowing me to be forgiven of some of those stupid things if, it's, if sin is involved and, and, and fixing uh, some of the things or growing me through the stupid things I do. I mean, I did a lot more stupid things when I was younger than I do now, I hope. Um, I often tell people, you know, we just don't get as much snow as we used to. Or maybe snow looks, looked bigger in my mind when I was like 12 or 13 years old than it does now. Because we used to... Cl- I don't know if I should say this, but anyway, we used to climb up on the school roof and jump off the roof into the snow. And then when we got really brave, we used to climb up on the gym roof. Now, the gym roof was obviously higher than the school roof, and we used to jump off the gym roof into the snow. So I think we got a lot more snow back in those days than we do now. But anyway, all of those stupid things, you've probably seen the memes in social media that says, um, it, it's, it's by the grace of God that I'm still alive today. Yep, it is by the grace of God that, that I'm still alive and many of my friends the same way. Cause we did stupid things. But even when we do things like that, God has a way of 
keeping us safe, protecting us because he sovereignly knows what he's going to do with us, how he's going to use us, and he wants us to be involved in the plans that he has set for us. And so he orders our life accordingly. So the idea of the fact that God is supreme and God is sovereign are tied together. Um, and so we're, it should help us have great hope and great comfort and even take consolation in the fact that God loves us, works through us, protects us, and is, can we say this, he is on the throne and still on the throne today. He's never abdicated his throne. And I'm thankful that God is still the supreme ruler of the world, of the universe, of my life, of your life, and we could put in there any any uh, noun that we wanted to put in there. God is the supreme ruler. So, this morning I brought some things to help us understand this idea of the fact uh, of what it means to be supreme, okay? Um, what, when, I, when you hear that word supreme, what comes to your mind? I'm taking Scott's first. S- Scott said supreme pizza. Now, you know what a supreme pizza is, right? What is a supreme? Somebody tell me. What is a? It's got everything on it. Well, I did some research on supreme. Me and supreme pizzas were like this. Because you know what a standard supreme pizza has on it? Green peppers. Green peppers. And red peppers. And onion. No. Not, I mean, Supreme Pizzas can actually have everything, but, a, but a, if, you, if you order a Supreme Pizza, almost every Supreme Pizza is going to have green peppers, pepperoni, onions, and che- well, cheese, of course, and red peppers, okay? The only thing on that pizza that I'm going to eat, pepperoni. But hey, I'm happy to accommodate all kinds of people. So... I brought, and I won't eat it, I promise you that. In fact, I'm not even going to let my wife eat it. Because I tell my wife, when she eats green peppers, I get heartburn. Okay? I'll let you figure that out. Anyway, um, Supreme Pizza. Anybody want, Mark, Supreme Pizza? Mark and I are probably in pretty much the same boat. All right, um, my wife's going to come, and she's going to bring a piece of Supreme Pizza for anybody that wants it. Boy, I can smell the green peppers. Uh, it just it, It's not even appetizing to me. But if you would like, it's pretty slippery on the tray, so if you would like some Supreme Pizza, go ahead and put your, pan, your hand up, and, and there's six pieces, I think. Uh, I think I cut it into six pieces. So if you're happy to have a piece of Supreme Pizza, in fact, why don't you stand up if you want a piece of Supreme Pizza, Okay. Um, and as she's passing out the pizza, just, you know, kind of humor me a little bit here. Because if I were going to have a pizza, like I said, I would not put any of that stuff except pepperoni on the pizza. For me, a supreme pizza, well, Mark, you tell me, what would a supreme pizza have on it for you? All meat. So you mean like pepperoni? Sausage, bacon, uh, maybe even some, some beef of some sort. That, now, when we make pizza at home, that's what we make. 
My wife doesn't get her supreme pizzas. I'm sorry. That's, I put my foot down there. Okay? I'm the man of the house, and there's no that kind of stuff on our pizzas. All right? Um, so are you all satisfied with your supreme pizzas? Uh, you got them all figured out, Barb? Is everybody going to get a piece that wants a piece? Okay. Well, for those of you who are like me and would rather have a better kind of supreme pizza, I didn't want you to feel bad. So... I brought meat lovers. Because this really is the supreme pizza. This is the best kind of pizza. I don't really know about this kind of pizza because I've never had it before. It's supposed to be really good. You know, they say DiGiorno's instead of delivery. So anyway, that's what, this, that's what these two are. If you want the real kind of supreme pizza, the good kind of supreme pizza, go ahead and stand up. Again, we got six pieces of this. Oh, is there, eight? is there eight? Okay. All right, so they're smaller pieces. I should have cut them in six so you get bigger pieces, right? So I'm going to bring this down. I'll trade pans with my wife. Paul, your pan's got pizza on the bottom of it, just so you know. I can't, you know, it's hard to get good help these days. But anyway. Um, okay, so now that we've got our ideas of supreme pizza sorted. I say, Pastor, why are you so f- silly? Why, why this kind of stuff? Well, you know, you know, sometimes I have to have good illustrations. And by the way, I'm not planning any crazy illustrations for next week. But you see, my idea here is that when we think about supreme, we have different ideas. We have different concepts. We have different thoughts about what goes through our minds when we think of supreme pizzas. I do not want green peppers on my pizza. In fact, I'm, I'm a firm believer that a pizza should be a meat dish. Okay, should not be anything except for cheese topping and then all the other meats. And by the way, anchovies do not count as meat. <laughs> just, just so you know. Okay, um, it has to, it has to have feet that it walks on in order to class, clarify, be classified as a meat. So, but, but you can have supreme vegetables if you like them, or you can have supreme meat. Different ideas, different philosophies, whatever way you slice it, a supreme pizza covers all of the toppings that you like. Now, as much as there might be a debate over what's the best kind of pizza, I want to tell you this morning that the supremacy of God, there's no questions. There's no doubts. There's no debating. It's the fact that God is indeed supreme. Nobody can contest with him. Nobody can come close to matching the supremacy of our great God. Three pieces left. Mark wants one. So when we think of supremacy with regard to God, let me tell you what the idea of supreme is. Supreme is highest in rank, authority, paramount, Sovereign, he's the chief, if you will. He is of the highest quality, degree, character, importance. He is the utmost. There is no one that can compare to our great God. Now, I've mentioned the book by A.W. Pink um, and the fact that he talks about the, the attributes of God. Here's a quote from Pink on the supremacy of God. 
Pink says, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. In other words, unless your God is supreme, he is not worthy of worship. Our God, because he is supreme, is so worthy of our worship. Luther makes a comment just as profound as Pink's when he was writing a letter to a guy by the name of Erasmus. Okay, He said this, your thoughts of God are too human. Wow. Does that make us stop and think about our thoughts toward God? Our God is, other than the fact that Jesus took on flesh and became man, our God is not human. He is supreme. He is, in, he is deity. Perhaps we're guilty of the same accusation made by Luther to Erasmus that our thoughts about God are too human. I think Natalie Grant reminds us of that in her song, King of the World. Let me read the lyrics to you this morning. I try to fit you in the walls inside my mind. I try to keep you safely in between the lines. I try to put you in a box that I've designed. I try to pull you down so we are eye to eye. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Just a whisper of your voice can tame the seas. So who am I to try to take the lead? Still I run ahead and think I'm strong enough. When you're the one who made me from the dust, when did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small? When you're the one who holds it all. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Oh, you set it all in motion. Every single moment you brought it all to be. And you're holding on to me. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? She goes through the chorus again. And then she says with a declaration at the end. You will always be the king of the world. Of the world. As we get started this morning, we're going to look at a few verses that remind us that our great God is supreme, and then we'll settle into our text for our morning message. Again, we'll ask you as you come forward to the mics to read that you read clearly, you read loudly, you read from what's on the screen so everybody can be on the same page together. First Chronicles, and they're also on your note page. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 10. We're going to also ask you that you only read one of the passages so you give other people the opportunity to read. So First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. Ben, you're up there. Go ahead and read for us if you would. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. And your hand is power and might, and your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. 
Wow, what a great description of God. We see here in these verses that God is the owner of all things and that he is to be glorified above all. We're going to jump to a, the second book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. Chloe's standing there. Go ahead and read it for us, Chloe. It said the Lord, O God of heaven, and of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before you people of Israel, and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Again, we see here that God is in charge. He's in charge of the nations and has the power and might to do as he desires with those nations. He carved out a piece of land, a piece of real estate. Now get this, and this is just a little side note. God gave the dimensions of that real estate, of that property. And for those who say that God has switched his plan, changed his plan, and and is not going to fulfill those promises of that piece of property that you know the boundaries are clearly established in the pages of Scripture, you're wrong. God is going to keep the promise to Abraham about the boundaries of the land. They were real, legitimate boundaries. And when his timing is right, Israel will possess all of that boundary, all of that land. He promised it, and therefore it will come to pass. Another man who we consider to be a patriarch, uh, the book of Job, Job chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, he tells us about the, the supremacy of our God. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Okay, now you got to remember what's gonna what's going on in Job's life. We're at we're kind of at the end of the book, getting close to the end of the book, and all of the all of the crazy things. You think it's crazy for us? Look at Job's life. All of the things that happened to him. He lost everything he had in life. He lost his possessions. He lost his family. He lost all of his wealth. He lost it all except for about four people that sometimes I think he probably wished he lost. Um, But anyway, he lost everything. And he says to God, this is after God has a conversation. God's talking to Job in chapter 41. And in chapter 42, Job says, I know, God, that you can do everything. And check out that last phrase. No purpose of yours can be withheld from you. What does that tell us? That tells us that God is supreme. He will do and can do as he pleases. The psalmist in Psalm 115 verse 3 gives us some more information about the supremacy of our great God. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Our God sits in heaven. And when he's, you know what he sits on in heaven, by the way? He sits on a, a throne, okay? Because he's the supreme. He's the ruler. And when he sits in heaven, he can do whatever he pleases. Now, aren't you glad that God only does things that are in line with his character, his attributes? But whatever he does, he does as he pleases. The wisest man who ever lived wrote these words in Proverbs chapter 21, verses 30 and 31. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. 
The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Even when we're talking about war, God is still in control. Boy, isn't that fitting for somebody who is supreme? We have rulers of countries that think they, they're in control of everything. Well, guess what? God is indeed in control of those things. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who walks, works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, so just think with me for a few moments about all of the amazing things Paul attributes to God as a result of our salvation, as a result of the work that Christ did and accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Guess what? There's nothing better than what God has given to us as a result of our salvation. As we jump to the Proverbs of the New Testament, if you will, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we see more about the supremacy of our great God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go touch to such and such a city, spend a year there, but mean buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas? Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow or for what is your life. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you... Ought to say? Ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Okay, so you and I have a tendency to make plans, don't we? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to sort this out, and I'm going to take care of that. And sometimes I wonder if we have God in the equation of those plans. James says we shouldn't make our determination. We shouldn't be the ones who says this or that. We should say, if the Lord wills, if it's God's plan for me, if God allows me to do it, I want to make sure that my life fits into the plan that God has ordained for me. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with planning, okay? But we ought to make sure that our plans are, are, are subject to what God has planned out for us, that we're willing to change our plans if need be and submit those plans that we make into the hand of our great God. And then Solomon, back in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Jim, go ahead and read that one for us. Okay, so a man plans his way, but even as we are planning out our way, you know what? We are supposed to make sure that the, the word of God directs our paths. 
What does it say in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Seek the Lord's will. And, and we find God's will in the pages of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to say, all right, Tim Mowers, I want you to go to this place and do such and such. But if I'm following the plan that God has in the Scriptures, all of those verses, and do a study sometime of the Scriptures that says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for you. There's lots of verses that talk about that. If we're doing those basic or generic things that God considers His will for us, He's going to lead you and direct you. He's going to place a still, small voice within you. It's going to give you direction as to where you should go and what you should do. And He's going to let His Word direct you as well as you are studying and reading His Word and putting it into practice in your life. So we want to make sure that we submit our plans into the hands of God and we let His Word direct us. I've told people before, um, you know, Pastor, I'm going to move to this place. Okay. Have you checked out churches in that area? Well, no, not really. Okay. Uh, Well, okay. Uh, Let me ask you another question. If there's no church in that area, do you plan to start a church in that area? Uh, I'm not really qualified for that. Well, then I say, maybe you should put your plans on hold and make sure that you can include God in those plans of your move. Because if there's not a place for you to worship and you don't plan to start a place to worship, then you shouldn't be going there. God determines for us to fellowship together and to worship together. And you can't do that if there's no place for you to worship. So God would not be moving you to that place unless you were willing to be used by God to start something in that place for as a place of worship. It's not, it's not hard to figure out, right? Let the Lord direct our paths. God, and we have to let God's word teach us in those areas. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. If you can't assemble together, then God's probably not directing you there unless it's your plan to start something there. Last verse that we want to take a look at is Proverbs, or Psalms, sorry, Psalm 37, verse 7. Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of who you prospers in this way, in his way, because the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Okay, what's that first word? Rest in the Lord. You see, when we realize that God is supreme and we trust our ways to the supreme God, what can we do? We can rest. We can wait patiently for him. We can trust him to do the things that he alone can do in and through us. So this morning as we consider this attribute of God, this attribute of God, the supremacy of God, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that comes from a great New Testament book uh, written by the Apostle Paul. It talks about our amazing salvation. It talks about all of the benefits and the blessings that you and I have as a result of our salvation. So would you this morning, open your copy of the scriptures with me to the book of Romans. This is going to be great. This is going to be uh, very encouraging for us, I hope, this morning as we consider this passage of scripture with regard to the supremacy of God. As we uh, turn there in, in our Bibles, I want to spend a moment in prayer asking God to encourage us and bless our time together in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are not just a God, 
but you are the one true God. You are, in fact, the supreme God. There is none like you, none that compares to you, none that can do the amazing things that our almighty, all-wise, all-loving God is able to do. So this morning, we worship you as we open your copies of the scriptures to a reminder of your awesomeness. Thank you for that reminder as we work through it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can we stand together? Romans chapter 11, we're going to read verses 33 through 36. It's on the screen, so if you'd like to read with me, you are certainly welcome to do that. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What a great passage of scripture from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It starts off with that, set, that statement, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge. In this verse, we see the depth of our great God and his amazing riches. As we work through this text this morning, we want to see, first of all, that you and I are amazed, or at least should be amazed, by his great Riches. Paul says, and he can't, I don't know that he can put any more emphasis on pen and paper by, than by saying, Oh, the depth of his riches. This is the beginning of a declaration of praise from the Apostle Paul. We could even call it a doxology or an anthem of praise, if you will. That word, oh, is an exclamatory word. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches of our great God. It's something that we would be putting exclamation points after. I had the privilege of talking to a friend of mine from South Africa. He called me on my birthday, uh, Charlie. He hopes to come and visit uh, in the very near future. So hello, Charlie, as you watch this morning or this afternoon. Um, but Charlie used to love, and I'm sure he still does, exclamation points. Okay, If he went, wrote something that was important to him, he would put not just one exclamation point or two exclamation points, but he'd fill the whole line with exclamation points. And as he led worship, he would remind us of the importance of exclaiming the greatness of our God and how excited we should become because we, we know how amazing, how awesome our God is. That's what Paul is saying here when he uses that word, oh. He's interjecting exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Oh, the depth of the riches of our great God. Now, when I was growing up, we watched the Yankees play on WPIX. Dave, were you with me on that? WPIX. Who were the announcers on WPIX? Don't remember? Okay. There was a guy, and, and of course I'm biased, and I'm going to say that the Yankees have always had the greatest announcers in baseball. I feel sorry for other teams when I watch their teams play and listen to their announcers. Mets aren't bad, aren't too bad, but nobody compares to like Phil Rizzuto and Bill White and Bobby Mercer, and those guys, they were amazing. Um, Phil Rizzuto gave us the phrase in regard to baseball. What was the phrase, Dave? Come on, who's got it? Holy cow! Ryan, 
Cue it up for us. This is, this is Phil Rizzuto. In other, other words, known as the scooter. There he is. I actually cried the day he died. I'll agree with that. There haven't been a whole enough holy cows in a long time for Yankee fans. But anyway, when, when Phil Risotto used that word, you knew there was an amazing play that just happened. And he didn't just use it for the Yankees. He used it for any good play that happened. Um, I can only imagine uh, Phil Rizzuto describing Derek Jeter's dive into the stands against the Boston Red Sox. A, a, a play that will go down as one of the greatest in all of baseball. He came out with a bloody chin, he, but he caught the ball. And, and that was a holy cow worthy play. And, and you know what? Those are the kind of plays that just take us back. We make it say, wow, this is why I love this game. It's such an amazing game. And yes, all teams have a couple of those plays a year. It's kind of like my golf shot. When I get one that goes straight down the fairway and it goes a couple hundred yards, that's what makes me go back and play the next time. I don't think I had one the last time I played. That's why I haven't played in like 10 years or longer. Okay? Um, but you and I should be as amazed about our great God as Phil Rizzuto is about the Yankees or was about the Yankees. In fact, we sing a song sometimes. Charles Gabriel captured that when he wrote, and all the way back in 1905, he penned these words, Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! Is my Savior's love for me. Oh, how amazing our great God really and truly is. So he goes on, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches of our great God. I could say the word depth is a very deep word. Come on, give me some laughter. The word depth is a deep word, okay? Um, but I, we won't go there, okay? Um, Seriously, though, when Paul wrote, oh, the depth, he used a pretty incredible word. It means profound. It means carrying the idea of greatness or immensity. Can we add to the fact that our great God is unrivaled? There really is none like him. The depth of our great God. And he goes on, he talks about the depth of what? The depth of the riches. This is not necessarily a word that speaks of material wealth, but rather it speaks to being abundant or immense. When God has, what God has is in abundant measure. He will never run out or face limitations or restrictions. You and I and every man that's ever lived is limited in the things that we can do. And the older we get, the more limited we are and become. We talk about this sometimes in our deacons' meetings. And, and we're not as young as we used to be. And we, when we think we can do cer- certain things, we think, uh-huh, maybe we should get somebody to help us do that. 
Okay? Um, because as we get older, we're limited in the things that we are able to do. But God is not limited in any way. He's not limited in his riches. He's not limited in his wisdom. He's not limited in his knowledge. When we can't figure out what we're going to do next, God's got the answers. It's already sorted out in his mind. And so as we think about the amazing riches of our great, we conti- great God, we continue and we go on. We adore him because of the magnitude of his riches. Paul says both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The wisdom of God is truly beyond our comprehension. But scripture tells us of some of the great things, some of the wise things that our God has accomplished. It, it make us sit back and say, wow. What a great God. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 24 says this. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. All right, there's an amen statement. The wisdom of God has brought salvation to mankind through the wisdom of the foolishness that is preached. Now, some people will tell us, in fact, even on our Facebook page, people say, one person has said, it's fool, you, you know, that's, that's lies, it's not the truth. You know what? It is the truth because it comes from the pages of scripture there's no denying it the foolishness of god has brought salvation to mankind you and i are born again because god planned it out that way he goes on to say in verse 24 but to those who are called both jews and greek christ the power of god and the wisdom of god I come down here and have a more intimate conversation with you, but the camera won't follow me. So let me do this. You and I are born again, and by the fact that we're born again, it is a statement of the wisdom of God. It could only be God who brought us from the depths of sin, from the miry pit, and placed us on his solid foundation. Not my wisdom. I'm still messing things up. But because of the wisdom of God, you and I have been brought in to the family of God. That's only one of the things that demonstrates the wisdom of God. We could go on and look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 where Paul writes, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We actually have to see what Paul's talking about, so we have to look at verses 8 and 9 to understand that. It says there, to the unsearchable riches of Christ and the fellowship of the mystery. You know what? These are some of the results of the eternal purposes of our great God. It's the fruit of the gospel message, and it's the the outpouring of the wisdom of God. When you and I, as the church of God, do what God asks us to do, when we are the church, and when I say that we are the church, I don't mean sitting here on Sunday morning. That's not the church. It's a gathering of people to worship God together. But when you and I, the church, goes out and impacts our community in ways that people say, why do you do that? Why do you love me? You don't even know me. Why would you do that for me? Why are you telling me these amazing things? When you and I are serving the world the way God wants us to serve the world, we are the church at work. And you know what? That's a demonstration of the wisdom of God. 
And it says here, made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. This, this doing the church stuff is not simply for you and I in the human realm. Wow. Ever think of that? It's the things that angels long to peer into. They can't figure it out. I mean, when Jesus came to earth as a babe wrapped in, in human skin, the angels were up there scratching their heads trying to figure it out. What in the world is God doing? This doesn't make sense. Why would he send his son, the eternal son of God, into this sin-cursed place and put him there in a manger full of straw? And as Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man, the the angels began to understand there's a purpose in this. There's wisdom of God in this. It's the only way that man could be redeemed, that man could be reconciled to the holy God. And now it makes sense to us now. God has a plan and God is working it out. The wisdom of God is seen in you and I in our obedience to the call of God in our lives. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of the understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know about wisdom and knowledge? You know what you need to know? You need to know Jesus Christ. You need to know God's plan through Jesus Christ to reconcile the lost to himself. And then for those lost who have been reconciled and brought into a loving relationship with him to go out and communicate that loving relationship to others. That's the wisdom. That's the treasure of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So what just what is this wisdom that we're talking about? It's the divine wisdom, including the ideas of infinite skill, insight, knowledge, and purity, only available to us through a right relationship with God in Jesus Christ. That's the wisdom of God. Paul uses a word for knowledge here. He says the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What does that word knowledge mean? It's more than just the gaining of information. It is a clear and exact understanding which is expressed, sorry, which expresses a more thorough participation in the object of knowledge on the part of the knowledgeable subject. Say, Pastor, what does that mean? In other words, if you want to have the knowledge of God, you need to be participating in the plan of God for your life. You can't sit back and just soak it up like a sponge. That's not participating. You need to be involved in the ministries that God has called you to. You need to be doing, you need to be actively serving. That's what the word means. It's it's expressed through a thorough participation of the subject who is going to gain knowledge. If you're just kind of soaking it in, you're not gaining knowledge. You're gaining, you're gaining kind of a, a book knowledge, but you're not gaining that epigonosca, that experiential knowledge that God wants you and I to have. It's important for us to understand. And because he makes that available to us as we participate in our relationship with him, there's an active participation 
you and I, we then turn and worship our great God. We are in awe of God because his wisdom. Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul is painting a picture for us. He says, God's ways are unsearchable. You know what that word unsearchable means? It means they cannot be traced. It literally refers to footprints that are untrackable, such as those of an animal that a hunter is unable to follow. Uh, We've probably all watched TV shows. Um, I, I guess the one that comes to mind is not a show, but it's a Disney movie, The Fox and the Hound. And the, you know, the fox doesn't want to be, tra- doesn't want people, anybody to f- track him down. So what does he do? He jumps from one rock to another rock and to another place, and he's all over the place. He doesn't travel in a straight line. He's trying to make it so his footprints aren't trackable. Perhaps you've seen TV shows where a guy is trying to elude the authorities, and he finds himself always by a riverbank. And so what does he do? He jumps in the river and he starts walking in the river. Why? Because the dogs, the bloodhounds can't follow your trail in the water. They lose the scent. So you become untrackable until you come back up out of the water. And then boom, you can track your scent again. The wisdom of our God is unsearchable. Impossible for the unbeliever, the unsaved man without the aid of the Holy Spirit to understand what God is doing. He goes on, he says, not only they're unsearchable, but they're past finding out. This compounds the difficulty of knowing the things of the Lord. Again, the idea of being impossible to track or trace. So we might wonder, what chance does the unbeliever have of knowing God? Well, Scripture is quite clear that no one will come to Christ unless the Spirit draws him to Christ. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. But praise God, in his supremacy, he seeks us out. He comes looking for us. He comes for us, and he draws us to himself. MacArthur states it this way. He says, Scripture is God's divine revelation of himself and of his will, and he has not given to mock and, con- and he has not given it to mock and confuse men, but to enlighten them and to bring them to himself. MacArthur goes on to say, although a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to them, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, God nevertheless gives the gracious assurance that you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is convicting you and drawing you to himself, you will search after God and then you will find God because he's not hard to find. He's not hiding himself. He wants to be found. And when he is found, he changes your life. He's past finding out unless you are willing to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, that's the amazingness of our great God, the depth of our great God. As we move on in our text this morning, um, we see the degrees of our great God's wealth the degrees of his wealth. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it shall be repaid to him? These are a series of rhetorical questions from Paul that show the richness of God's wisdom and his wealth. The first question is, who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer to that question is, no one. You don't know the mind of the Lord. You can't know the mind of the Lord. Who can figure out God's way of thinking? (laughs) 
Many of, us, many of us have said that about our kids. What in the world were you thinking? Why did you do that? We scratch our heads. We can't figure it out. I used to work at an office supply store. Part of my job was to put together furniture. Not stuff that I built, but stuff that came in a box. Usually it was press board stuff, unless people wanted to spend a lot of money, then it would be the real wood. But it would come with pages and pages and pages of instructions. You know those kinds of instructions that weren't really written in English and somebody translated them and you, you, you wonder, what does that mean? I, where did that phrase come from? I don't understand that. So a lot of times you just throw the instructions away and start working at it. Okay? That's the idea. You can't figure out God's mind. Remember, when we uh, lived in South Africa, we had a, our landlords wanted to add on to our house. So we had plans drawn up, took those plans to the town, the city, and submitted those uh, for approval. And I got a phone, well, it took, and then we actually came back to America thinking that the plans would be approved and that the, the building would be started when we got back to the South Africa. We got to South Africa and nothing was done. I said to the builder, I said, what's going on? How come we don't have nothing done here? He says, well, uh, we're still waiting for the plans to be approved. So I went into the, the code office, and I said, well, how come we haven't had our plans yet? He said, oh, there's a problem with the plans. You're infringing on the, 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 the building line. I said, we're not infringing on the They require four meters from the curb to where the building is. I said, we're not infringing. Yes, you are. We'll have to send out a building inspector. Okay. So the building inspector comes out. He gets his little measuring device out, and he looks at our plans, and he starts measuring, and he goes, he looks at me, why am I here? I said, well, because the code office says that we're infringing on the building lines. He says, you're not infringing on the building lines. I said, I know. Couldn't understand it. Couldn't figure it out. He said, how long have you been waiting for these plans? I said, about a year. He said, you'll have them tomorrow. Past finding out. The same building code came to our church when we, when we dug, when, the, when the, they put the steel portal frame up, they turned it. 90 degrees. So instead of the building sitting this way, it was sitting this way. Fortunately, it was nearly square. But he comes and he measures it all out. And I, I don't know if that was a, a common thing for him, but he's like, he said, what did you guys do here? I said, what do you mean, what did you guys do? He said, something's not right. And, and I knew what wasn't right, but I wasn't going to tell him because that's what they said. Don't tell him, let him figure it out. I, I, I said, what do you mean? I said, we, we hired a company, they came in, they pulled the steel frame up. Um, he says, well, I'm going to figure it out. And he says, if it's not right, I'm going to shut you down. I said, okay. I said, well, he says, you're trying to get more building on this property than you're supposed to. I said, no, we're not. I said, it's the size the plan called for. So he finally figured it out. He says, okay. He says, not a problem. He says, we're only a meter off. I said, okay, thank you very much. But you know, you can't figure it out. And people are just, how many times have you in your life said, I just don't understand this? What is going on? It's tax season, right? You sit down and you start filling out the tax forms. Oh, man, why can't they write this in plain English? We can't figure out the amazingness of our God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? 
God is the same way in that no one can figure out the mind of God. His wisdom is far superior to any other person that has ever lived. There is no one who knows or can know the mind of the Lord outside of the wisdom and direction and counsel given to them from the Holy Spirit. The second question is, who has become his counselor? Or to put it differently, no one is able to give advice to you, O God, Because you are wise. You are the ultimate in wisdom. No one can give counsel to God. Nobody can go to God and say, hey God, you should do it this way. Or you should try this. Or why don't you do this? Remember the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, the mind of our God is past our finding out, humanly speaking. And you don't want to be dismayed about that. That should bring great comfort and hope to you. No matter what's going on in your life, you can go to the God who planned it all, and he can guide you and give you directions as you walk the path he has planned out for you. Well... Let's carry on. We also see the dominant acts of God demonstrate his superiority. God's dominant acts demonstrate his superiority or his supremacy. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We see in this section, in this last verse, that he is the creator of all things. Paul says, for of him, because of Because he's the creator, all things came from him or came from his hand. This is why we believe in a literal six days of creation. The Genesis account, as seen in chapter 1 of Genesis, tells us what happened on each day of creation. And then we get to chapter 2, and chapter 2 fills in the details of the creation week. There is nothing more powerful than to create and to make it even more impressive. God created out of nothing. He spoke, that word ex nihilo means he spoke and it came into existence. It came from nothing. God didn't start with something and then make it like I do with my woodworking projects. If God wants something, he would just speak it and boom, there it is. He spoke it into existence. He made it out of nothing. He is the creator of all things. And then we see also here that all things in him consist Everything holds together through him. Not only did God create everything, but in him or through him, everything continues to be. Paul explains it this way over in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all All things hold together. One of the things that has been on the news a lot since we entered this COVID era is the phrase, follow the science. Follow the science. My friends, you know what true science tells you? True science tells you that God created in six days the heavens and the earth. 
There's no guess, there's no doubt, there's no fudging, there's no making things up. There is a literal creation by the hand of Almighty God. For by Him, all things were created. And I don't care if you talk to any scientist that follows the science, they will come down, have to come down, and say, creation is the most logical explanation for the world we live in. That's... If you can get them to admit and to follow the science, that's where they have to come down. Because there's no missing links in creation. There's no, uh, well, we can't really explain that. Creation is the perfect explanation for how this world came into being. I le- and, and not only how it came into being, but how it stays in, the, in being. How it continues day after day, week after week, year after year for about 7,000 years, that's all. Less than 10 for sure. Not billions, not not trillions of years. The earth hasn't been around that long. God created it with age, the appearance of age. And so we look at it and we say, wow, what an amazing God. He is so incredible. And you know what? When we think of the fact that in him all things consist or through him all things hold together, I like to tell people that God is the super glue of the world. When things break, what do we do? We go get the super glue and we put it back together the way we think it should be. God keeps everything together. Jesus is the super glue of creation. So in him, all things consist. He's the creator. He's the keeper of things together. And then we see, Paul says, he controls all things. So from him and through him and to him. Everything belongs to God, and therefore, he's in control of all things. If you own something, you get to do with it what you want to do with it, right? Because you are the owner of it. You are the one who controls it. God controls all things. I like what the Nelson Study Bible says regarding this thought. It says, he is the goal of all things. He is the end result. He is the accomplishment. He is the one who is glorified in his creation. You and I should make it our goal to be pleasing to the one who is the supreme ruler over all of the earth and over all of the world. So what's the result of the supremacy of God? Paul closes it out in verse 36 when he says that he... Just take a look there at the end of verse 36. He says... To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what? Creation sings the song of praise to our God. Guess what? There's another five to nine inches of snow in the forecast. Every one of those snowflakes cry out the praises of God. I might say enough is enough already. But, but God in his wisdom knows. Because you know what? If we didn't have the snow, it, you can complain about the foot here and foot there and the foot we had last week. But you know what? If we don't get all of the snow that we need throughout the winter, come springtime when it's time to plant, guess what the farmers are saying? We don't have enough moisture. What are we going to do? Let God be God. Let him be in control and be thankful for the fact that he is in control. He knows how much to send us. He knows what to give us. He knows exactly what we need. 
Again, from the Nelson Study Bible, it says, God is the source, the means, and the end of all things. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal of everything. Therefore, he should be praised and glorified forever. You and I have the privilege of glorifying God forever. I think it was the Westminster Catechism that says, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. You and I fall into that category. We have the opportunity to glorify him. So when you look at your life and you say, God, I don't understand. Instead of saying to God, God, you need, you need to tell me what's going on. You need to say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let you work in my life. And, and, and even if it looks pretty scary, I'm going to let you figure it out. And I'm going to follow your leading. I'm going to let your Holy Spirit lead me and direct me. And please don't think that the Holy Spirit, saying that is a spooky, charismatic thought. Because it's not. God gave us. In fact, what did Jesus say? I'm going to the Father. When I get there, I'm going to do what? I'm going to send another comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He's going to teach us and he's going to guide us. He's going to love us. He's going to dwell in us. So when you let the Holy Spirit lead you, it's not a mystical thing. It's based on what you've been learning and studying and reading in the pages of Scripture. And you, you know how to reason through biblical perspective. And you put that into play and you trust God. To work those things out for you. The fact that God is supreme should bring great comfort and great joy to us as the children of God. He doesn't play favorites. He can't be bought. Why? Because he's supreme. And as the supreme ruler, he always cares for us. And he always will do what is best according to his plan and purpose for us. So as we close this morning, in our minds, or even out loud if you want, can we say, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. And you know what? There's no one greater than our God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we say, to God be the glory. And we're thankful for the great things that you have done, and the great things that you continue to do. You are the one true God. There is none like you. You are the great God of creation. You are the great God of salvation. You're the great God who will someday send Jesus to take us home, to be with you in heaven for all of eternity. To you, God, belongs glory and power and dominion and praise forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, God. Well, we're going to close our service this morning with a very good response to the supremacy of God. And that is...